You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, We will be in Matthew 5, what uh, Taryn just read for us, but also going to be in Matthew 19. So go ahead and turn there, Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. Uh, As you're turning there, uh, welcome. My name is Jamin Roller. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. If you're joining us here or uh, joining us online, just so thrilled uh, that you are with us. Um, my favorite holiday is Christmas. My, anybody else? Okay. My kids' favorite holiday is Christmas. So our, our family, Christmas is a big deal for us. And what we're trying to do uh, in that time is we're, we're trying to celebrate Christmas in a way that, that, that's worth it. So we decorate, uh, we decorate before Thanksgiving. Sorry if that offends you. We leave our decorations up long after it's appropriate. I, I may or may not currently have Christmas lights on my house, which is some of that is because I love Christmas. Some of that's because I'm lazy. But we make a big deal of presents. We make a big deal of decorating. We make a big deal of gift giving and, and, and gift receiving. Uh, we're developing traditions as a family. But here's what Carrie, my wife, and I, here's what we're after. What The thing that we most want to be true about that season for us is that we're holding up the true story of Jesus that we celebrate on Christmas. Christmas is about Jesus. It's about celebrating uh, his birth, celebrating and remembering the fact that Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus came to, to be with us. And so we do an Advent calendar. We memorize a passage in Luke chapter one that we recite most nights as a family. We have an Advent prayer that we pray every night at the dinner table that goes like this. Jesus, thank you for loving us and saving us from our sins. We are so glad you were born. Christmas is about you. Life is about you. We can't wait to see you again. Please come back soon. Because there is one true story. There is one weighty story around Christmas that we want to hold up and and hone in on. It doesn't mean we don't have fun. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, enjoy the cultural things about Christmas and enjoy some of the cultural stories of Christmas. Like, uh, you know, this year we bought an eight-foot Buddy the Elf inflatable and put it right in the middle of our yard. Which, which was maybe the best decision we made all last year, right? And so that's, we celebrate it, we understand the stories, we enjoy those kinds of stories, but what we're mindful of is we live in a culture where around Christmas there are fictional stories that compete for the heart and compete for the attention. And we want to focus on the real story. And what we found is we have found that that's really difficult. In talking with our kids about Christmas, about Jesus, it's really difficult to keep that the main thing of Christmas. Even we'll be talking about the true story of Christmas and what will happen is some of those false stories will make their way in. So like I'm reading a book with my daughter about Jesus, how he's born, uh, you know, and angels come and shepherds are there and she stops me and she says, wait, where, where are the reindeer? And that's the kind of thing that happens. As you're trying to keep the true story of Christmas like the main thing in the home, what you'll hear is you'll hear these other stories that are fun, but these other stories that are fake and fictitious, you'll hear those come in. Now, I know it's March. I know it's not December. But I say all that to say this. We have a very similar challenge this morning as we talk about love and as we talk about marriage and especially as we talk about divorce. We're talking about those things this morning because Jesus wants us to talk about those things because that's what he talks about in his sermon that we're walking through. But there is a true story about marriage, what, it, what it's for, what it does. There's a 
a true story about love. There's a true story about divorce. And then there's a lot of, of fiction. There are already things in a room like this, there are already things that you and I have been taught about marriage and already things that you and I have been taught about love and those things that, that we're bringing in, like living where we live. Many of us did not primarily learn about marriage from the Bible or love from the Bible. Many of us maybe didn't, you know, all of us didn't only learn about marriage and love from the Bible. There are all kinds of voices telling all kinds of stories. Like I was a kid during the 90s, so I learned as much about love and marriage from Boy Meets World and Boys to Men as I did from, from Sunday school, right? And, and some of those, they were good teachers in some way. Like, I still love and listen to both of those things. That's what I want you to know. But the reality is this, that, that the world around us that we live in, the books, the entertainment, the stories, they do not just entertain us. They do not just help us pass time. They form us. They shape us. They catechize us. Let me, let me say it very candidly. Uh, in my role as a pastor, what has happened sometimes is I will sit with a, a, a man or a woman, I will sit with a husband or a wife, and they will tell me that they're leaving their marriage. They'll tell me that they're leaving their family. And when I ask why, sometimes what happens is, is that their answer reveals beliefs about love and marriage and divorce that sound a lot like a self-help book or sound a lot like a movie or a lot like a love song, but sound nothing like Jesus sound nothing like Jesus. They bought into, and we can often buy into the fiction around love and marriage, and, and that can win our hearts. And then when we try and live out that fiction in reality, it, it ruins our relationships. So my job today, what Jesus would have us do today is to hold out the true story of marriage, the true story of love, the true story of what God says. And, and I know that as we do that, for some of us, if not all of us, there will be plenty of like, what about the reindeer moments? There'll be plenty of moments where the thing that happens is the other stories that we have believed are going to confront or compete with the true story that God tells. And what Jesus wants to do in that moment is ask us whose voice we trust most. Um, if this is your first time here, or if this is your first time here in, in a long time, we have been in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in a portion of that series where we're talking about where Jesus is making us, he wants to make us deeply righteous people. He wants to make us whole people. And what he said is he started that whole project by saying he's going to give us a righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a whole person behavior that corresponds to God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. And how that starts, where that begins, over and again, he will say, you have heard that it was said, but I say, you have heard that it was said. There are these other voices around you. Listen to my voice. And here's, here's what that teaches us that deep change does not begin with having the right behavior. It begins by listening to the right voice. Because whoever has your ear controls your life. Whoever has your ear controls your life. If there's one thing that you hear in this whole section that we're in, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's that whoever has your, you are right now, who you are right now, who you're becoming right now is the direct result of what voices you've given authority over your life. 
And so here, when we think about marriage and how we act in marriage or what we want from marriage or love, it can be all of those answers. If we sat down and we had a conversation after service and I said, hey, tell me what you believe about marriage. Everything you say can be traced back to some influence in your life that was in your life before our conversation. Everything you say. And so the question that Jesus would ask all of us is as we answer that question, does it sound like him? Does it sound like him? Or does it sound like fiction? Does it sound like his version of love and his version of marriage? Does it, does it sound like someone else's or something else's? Here's the true story about marriage that Jesus will tell. Just one point. That Jesus will say that marriage is God-centered and covenant-driven. Marriage is God-centered and covenant-driven. If this is a, a time that you typically take notes, write that down. Marriage is God-centered and it's covenant-driven. In Matthew 5, 30 through 31, he has a conversation on, on marriage and divorce that Taryn read for us. In Matthew 19, he has a very similar conversation, but he offers a little bit more color and detail. So we'll do Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? These guys come to Jesus, and they ask him a question, and in their question, what you hear is, you hear the cultural story they believe about marriage and divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus responds, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So that's Genesis. In Jesus' response, he goes back to the very beginning. Hold on to that. They said to him in verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So they clap back at Jesus with another one of their cultural understandings of marriage. And you hear the, the fiction. You hear the other stories coming back at Jesus. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. He hear me. Marriage is God-centered and covenant-driven. That's what all of this, all that Jesus says here, that's what it's after. He has this conversation here with people about marriage, and they come to him, and, and in coming to him, they bring their, their uh, cultural ideas about marriage. Hey, isn't it true that you can divorce your wife for any and every reason? And then Jesus responds, and they say, well, then why would Moses give us the certificate of divorce? What's, what's happening there is that they are talking about a passage in Deuteronomy 24. It's in your Bible. You can go read it. Right, well, not right now. After the service, you go read it. Deuteronomy 24, it's a passage where Moses is uh, giving laws to the people to regulate the practice of divorce. So they are not uh, laws intended to condone divorce, but to try and control divorce's consequences. It was a time for the people of God where divorce was rampant, and there was a lot of people being hurt deeply hurt because divorce was taken so loosely and lightly. And so part of what the law existed for was to control the consequences of divorce and in that to help protect specifically the law given to protect women, the law given to protect uh, wives who would be left socially and economically vulnerable if their husbands divorced them. So that's the law. By Jesus' day, what that had become is that had become this loophole to justify divorce for any and every reason. So lots of people who had really thin or really um, weak reasons for ending their marriage, and then they would come and they would hold up that piece of paper and said, well, Moses told, told me I could. 
So it's a view of marriage that's not God-centered and covenant-driven. It was a, if anything, it was self-centered and, and covenant-dismissive. And Jesus is going to weigh in on that and follow his logic with me. Would you just follow where he goes? He goes back to the beginning. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And then he quotes directly from Genesis. So hear me. If you miss this, you'll miss everything else that we say this morning. The story of marriage does not start with two people who fall in love. The story of marriage starts with a Trinitarian God who is love, a Trinitarian God who creates a world and then relationships with the people he created. So if you'd see this with me, God has a relationship with Adam and God has a relationship with Eve before Adam and Eve have a relationship with one another. He creates a world where at the very beginning, God has a relationship with Adam, the man, and God has a relationship with Eve, the woman. And that's the starting place. Two people in right relationship with God. That's the beginning. And then what happens is, is these two people, God uh, gives romance and, and, and attraction in their hearts and their desires, and they fall in love with one another. And because they are both right with God, they then wed one another that's how God designed it. And then what happens in Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, they've got huge marriage problems. They've got huge relational problems. But why do they have huge marriage problems in Genesis 3? Because they now have huge God problems. So they first have huge God problems. And because they have a huge God problem, because they have a fracture in their relationship with God, they then have a fracture in their relationship with one another. And so here's, here's the reality. If the relationship with God is not right, you cannot be right with anyone else. You can't be in right relationship with any other person if you're not in right relationship with God. That's why the most helpful marriage counseling that you could go to, the most helpful biblical counseling you could go to for your marriage is going to be a counseling that starts by saying, I know you're here to talk about the two of you. Like, I know you're here and you want to talk about the problems in your marriage and you want to talk about how unhappy you are with the way that things are. But, but a good counselor will say, that's not our first step. Our first step is to talk about each of you and God. Our first step is to talk about you and your relationship with God. And then usually the next step is to talk about your family growing up. But, but, but the, the starting place is you and God. Because if you're not right with God, you can't have any hope of being right with one another. And that models this, what we see here, that God, the first relationship that God sets out to repair, sin enters the world. Things are broken. Things are fractured. Things are messy. And God sees a broken marriage. But before that, he sees two broken humans who are, have a fractured relationship with him. And so the, the first thing that he sets out to repair is his relationship with them. He doesn't launch a marriage conference. He doesn't send some sort of you know, messianic marriage counselor. What he launches is a rescue plan to recapture the hearts and lives to forgive those who have sinned against him. And how he does that is through covenant. If you've never heard that word, we just hang on to that word. God relates to his people by making covenant with his people. From Genesis 12 to Jesus, that's how God relates to fallen humanity who belong to him. Right now, if you're a Christian, because of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, which we get to celebrate in a really intense way this week, please come to Good Friday service this Friday and then Easter next Sunday where we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. But because of all of those things, you have been welcomed into covenant with God. And, and, and God, the way that he loves us, is that his love is sealed with a promise, and that promise is called a covenant. 
It's a threefold promise. If you look at every single covenant in the Bible, it's going to have these three things as part of its promise. It's God's promise to be with us, to be for us, and to form us. That God promises, pledges to you an irrevocable vow that he will be with you and for you and he will form you. What that means is he is uh, with you. He'll never leave or forsake you. He is for you. He wants good for your life. Uh, He will never destroy you. God will never become your adversary. He is also forming you. He will change you. It's the whole point of the, the section of sermon that Jesus is in right now, that he wants to, as Paul says, to present you holy and blameless and beautiful and above reproach. He has vowed to make you the you that you desperately want to be, but that you have no shot of making yourself without God. He's vowed to do that in and for you. Christian, that's God. That's relationship with God in Christ. Well, what does that have to do with marriage? Everything. It has everything to do with marriage. Let me state it plainly. The most important, look right at me, the most important love relationship in your life is your relationship with God. The most important love relationship in your life is your relationship with God. Which means marriage is not the point of life. God is. So so like if you're single, if you're single and you're waiting to get married, you are not waiting for your life to begin. You're not. You're not in this season where the, where the real meaning of life is still ahead of you. You're not in this season where the real significant way to be alive is ahead of you because marriage is not, like the false story would say that right now if you're single, there's something, especially if you're single and young, there's something missing from your life. There's a part of your life that just is still waiting to launch, right? So finding your true love is what life is all about. And until that happens for you, something is missing, which can create a lot of insecurity and can create a lot of inner turmoil, especially if you're in that season of life where you're watching a lot of people around you get married. You're watching a lot of people who are the same age of you. They've found someone they're marrying right now. And what that can do is that can make you feel like life is passing you by and there must be something wrong with you. Can I maybe just offer some peace to that pressure. Marriage is not the point of life. Hear me. The fairy tale is not marrying the man of your dreams. The fairy tale is not marrying the woman of your desires. The fairy tale is being loved by the God of the universe. Your desperate need, your most desperate need is not for a soulmate. Your most desperate need is for a savior for someone who loves you, for someone who redeems you, someone who rescues you and cleanses you, right? And if you know him, if you know Jesus, what that means is that you have in him what you most need. And and so some of us, if we're single, we so desperately want to hurry up and get married. Maybe what's needed is to slow down and love God. Maybe what's needed is to slow down and and learn to receive the love of God in Christ because what's gonna happen is when you get married, What marriage is all about is learning how to offer the love that you get from God to your spouse. It is not about uh, needing the love from your spouse so bad, and, and, and it's not about positioning yourself to where you are in constant expectation of perfect love from your spouse. It goes the opposite way. You learn to receive love from God and then offer it to the person that you call wife or offer it to the person that you call husband. And our church is filled with godly, single women and men who model this so well. It's, it's filled with godly single, some who are single by choice, some who are single by circumstances, some who have been made single through pain and suffering who believe 
and live full and faithful lives. Not painless, but full and faithful lives because they know that God, not marriage, is the point of life. And if that's you, sister, if that's you, brother, thank you. We are, I know that sermons like this on topics like this can often make you feel alienated and alone. God sees you. I see you. Thank you. We are better because of you. Jesus takes us back to the beginning, and he starts with God, with relationship with God. Life is about being in covenant with God. Life is about being right with God. What then is marriage? If life is about being in covenant relationship with God, marriage is when you take one man who's in covenant with God and one woman who's in covenant with God and they make a covenant with one another to love one another the way that they have been loved by God. Paul says that in Ephesians 5. He recites Jesus reciting Genesis and he says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He says this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. It's a profound mystery. Well, what's the mystery? That God created marriage with the intention that the husband-wife relationship would reflect the Christ church relationship. That's what marriage is for. To say it another way, our marriage, if you're married, husband-wife, your covenant exists to reflect the redemptive covenant. Your covenant is a picture of a larger story of a God who loves covenantally, who is with us, who is for us, who is forming us. And God says, I want that story to go out in one of his most creative, beautiful, brilliant, difficult, complicated storytellers is marriage. God-centered and covenant-driven. That's the true story of marriage. I've said that a lot. Let me unpack it because I can't afford to assume or be unclear. Here's what I mean by God-centered. It means that at the center of your marriage is God. At the center of your relationship is God. The marriage does not revolve around the husband. The marriage does not revolve around the wife. The marriage does not revolve around the kids. The marriage does not revolve around the career or the career aspirations. The marriage does not revolve around the in-laws. The the marriage does not revolve around how in love we do or don't feel or how appreciated we do or don't feel. It revolves around God. All of those things are crucial parts of marriage. The the husband, the wife, the kids, the career, uh, feeling loved, feeling appreciated. All of those things are crucial parts of the marriage. None of them work as the center of marriage. You take any one of those and you put it at the center of the marriage, the marriage will be, uh, it will begin to spoil The design of marriage is that it would be an overflow of love between you and God spilling out as love for your spouse. So Carrie and I have been married. It'll be 13 years in July. And if you ask me, why do you love your wife? If you were to ask me, why do you love Carrie? There's a lot of good answers. There's only one best answer. One good answer is that she loves and serves our family just so faithfully. One good answer is that she is really sensitive to truth. Her heart is tender to the truth of God. One good answer is that she uh, is sensitive to the needs of others around her, especially her children and especially her friends. One good answer is that she laughs at my jokes about half the time, which is way more than you do, church. But there is this answer that is the best. There's only one answer that's the best answer. One answer that's more foundational. Jamin, why do you love Carrie? Because I love Jesus. Because I love Jesus. Because Jesus first loved me. Because when I was just a boy, he interrupted my life. 
He rescued me from sin and self, and he invited me through his blood into covenant with a holy God, and a Trinitarian God has set his pledge on my life that he is with me, for me, and forming me all of the days of my life until I enter into glory or until my body is raised when Jesus returns. That's the love from which I love my wife, and that's the love from which she loves me in return, because at the center of our marriage is not me, and at the center of our marriage is not her, but the very center is Jesus, and it is from him and from love with him that we both draw the love that we need to then offer to one another, kindness and romance and forgiveness and, 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 and patience and love, and that is covenant promise. So not only is it God-centered, it's covenant-driven. What that means is just like God is with you and for you and forming you at the altar, if you're married, you looked at your spouse and you said, I'm going to love you that way. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be for you. And I'm going to be part of the instruments that God uses to form and sanctify you. And so what your vows were is you saying, I'm going to be present with you. I will not leave you. Uh, wife, husband, you will never become too much for me. We are one flesh. And, and God is for me, so I am for you to delight in you and advocate for you and be patient with you. And God is forming me. And what that means is I'm going to expect of our relationship. I'm going to expect from you. And I'm going to offer from me that I am one of God's instruments in sanctifying you and helping to shape and make you beautiful and to make you holy and to make you above reproach. And that's marriage. That's the true story of marriage, that it's God-centered and covenant-driven. And marriage is really hard. Some of you, from a place of deep wisdom, decided not to say amen. I, I think that was wise. <laughs> marriage is really hard. And we all come to, to, to marriage with expectations and hopes. And when we face the difficulty of, of marriage, when we experience the conflict that we either did see coming or especially the conflict we didn't see coming, it's really easy to forget that the true story of marriage is that it's God-centered and covenant-driven. Friday afternoon, uh, our whole family was doing uh, yard work because that's, that's the kind of dad I am. It's like, I'm not going to do this alone. You're all going to do this with me. Uh, my seven-year-old says, this is a conversation we have over and again. My seven-year-old says, Dad, tell me about how you and Mom met. So I tell her how we met. She said, Dad, tell me the story about how you asked Mom to marry you. So I told her that story. And then she was quiet, and she says, Dad, do you think I will ever marry one day? And what I thought in my flesh was there is not a single man who will ever be worthy of you. So you, just, you should just stay home for the rest of your life. Uh, I didn't say that out loud, but... I didn't say that out loud. So I asked her this. Instead of answering her question, I said, hey, well, what kind of guy would you want to marry? And then she fired off this list so quick <laughs> that I could tell that meant she had been thinking about it for a while, which immediately made me so sad. I don't know. There's work needed right here. Um, but she said, oh, he loves Jesus, which I was grateful for. He thinks I'm pretty. He'll never fight with me. He'll love dogs. He agrees with everything I say. <laughs> and then she said this, and he does all the yard work. <laughs> Which was so terrifyingly passive-aggressive of her in that moment. <laughs> and I just thought, at such a young age, we start to formulate those expectations, right? We all come into marriage with a list. 
spoken or unspoken. And sometimes what happens is, is we don't think we have one or we don't know we have one until the marriage is failing to live up to it. And then we discover that I had all of these expectations. And it's in those moments, it's often in the conflict, it's, it's in the, the hardship of relationship that we see most clearly what we believe marriage is about. And I think the drift, the longer, with, with, without a disciplined reminder of why we said I do, without a disciplined reminder of why God gave us this thing called marriage from the beginning, the drift is not towards marriages that are God-centered and covenant-driven. The drift is towards, I think, in our, specific to our context. Here's what I see. The drift is towards marriages that are self-centered and comparison-driven. Not God-centered and covenant-driven. Self-centered and comparison-driven. Here's what I mean. Self-centered means there's something about me that I demand the relationship orients around. So maybe there are parts of me that kind of operate a little bit selflessly in the marriage, but there is something about me, like, like maybe I make the marriage orient around my needs, or maybe I make the marriage orient around my career. I'm always asking the family to sacrifice. I'm never asking the job to sacrifice. I'm always, I'm always taking time away from wife and kids and offering that time to career because myself and my career aspirations have become the center of the marriage. Or maybe I make, pay attention, the marriage centers around my emotion. Like when my spouse has to act a certain way so that she doesn't provoke my anger or my spouse has to treat me a certain way so that he doesn't provoke my insecurity. And at that point, I've taken some part of maybe wounds that need healing in my past or in my soul, and I have made those what the marriage is orienting around. It's about me. And and I'm not talking about the freedom and the space to mutually walk through emotions together. That's what marriage is about. But my emotions are used to manipulate, or my emotions are used to intimidate, or at any given point, I I can use my emotion to change the subject and, and, and demand all the attention become on me. And what happens is, is if the marriage is self-centered, if there's two people, if the husband and wife are both demanding the marriage be about them, then that's this power struggle that is explosive conflict, and that turns the marriage into a constant war zone. It's just always a battle. Or when just one is the center, when, one, when the husband or when the wife demands that the marriage orient around them and the other concedes or the other makes space, what that means, what God designed it for God to be at the center. And when God is at the center, both husband and wife flourish together. But when you take just one of them, like when the husband is at the center, that means the wife has two options. Either the wife has to treat the husband like God and crumble under that weight, shrivel under that weight, or the wife has to go around the husband to be with God. And then the marriage doesn't become a war zone. It becomes a mission field for her at that point. And it wasn't designed to be that. Hear me. If you're married, or if you want to be married, or if you plan to be married, you do not belong at the center of your marriage. God does. Marriage was not designed for you to be at the center of your marriage. If you are right now fighting to be the point of your marriage, even if you win, you will lose. Marriage is not meant to be a war zone. Marriage was not intended to be a mission field. It's meant to be a home. It's meant to be a family where you're creating something beautiful together in mutual, sacrificial, deferential, covenant love towards one another. Not only do we see a lot of marriage stories that are self-centered, but they're also comparison-driven. Please hear me. 
meaning I judge my marriage and I judge how my marriage is going compared to others around me. And that is especially true right now because what we have through social media, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or something I've never heard of, but we have through social media immediate access to everyone else's projected happiness. And one of our favorite things to project that we're happy about is our relationships. And so one of the fastest ways to deteriorate trust in your marriage, one of the fastest ways to deteriorate gratitude in your marriage, one of the fastest ways to deteriorate your own confidence in your marriage, what God can do in your marriage, where God is taking your marriage, is to hold your marriage to the standard of someone else's marriage. Especially, especially when you have no idea what their marriage is actually like. When you don't know their pains, you don't know their story, you don't know their weaknesses, you don't know what happens behind closed doors, you don't know what they fight about or how they've learned to fight over their years together. And what happens as we're sitting in our, we're making our marriages comparison driven, comparison 100% of the time becomes accusation. Comparison always leads to accusation where I see what I perceive as someone else's marriage going better than mine. And I see this perception of their relationship going better, them being a better spouse than I am. And I put my marriage or my relationship up against the perception and in between the perception of others and my reality, accusation just is birthed and accusation grows like a cancer. And that's accusation towards myself. Uh, Gosh, I'm not like him. I'm not like her. I I should be better. I should be godly or I should be more spiritual. I should be more successful. I should be more attractive. Or it's accusation towards my spouse. If only he were like that. If if only she were like that. And then what has happened is instead of loving the person right in front of you, instead of loving the person that you've covenanted to be with for better or for worse, what we do is we hold the person in front of us to the standard of the person that they're not the standard of the person that maybe even God hasn't called them to be because everyone is made differently. Listen, a covenant-driven marriage, one that's not a comparison-driven marriage, a covenant-driven marriage does not pretend like things don't need to change. I'm not saying that. Every marriage is filled with conflict. Every marriage, you you, you will not have an honest marriage that doesn't have conflict as part of it. Someone told me once, we're three years into marriage and we haven't even fought yet. And I said, well, then you're not talking about the right things. Because every marriage is going to have conflict in it, right? But it's not dishonest about that, a covenant-driven marriage. A covenant-driven marriage says, I am with you, and I am for you, and I'm one of the ways that God is forming you, and that means I want us to change together. I don't want you to change to become anyone else's image. I don't want our marriage to be, you know, anyone else's marriage. I just want what God has for us. And that means that together we're going to change and be conformed. But the standard is being like Jesus. The standard is loving like Jesus. And so I can look my wife in the eyes. Uh, You can look your spouse in the eyes and say, I love you right now. The you that's right in front of me is the you that I love. And we need work. And we will always need work. But it's a work that I want to work on with you and no one else. And the standard is Jesus, him being the source of our love and no one else. Marriage is God-centered and covenant-driven. It's the story Jesus tells. Guys come up to him asking about divorce, and he tells them the true story about marriage. And he holds up that movement, God-centered, covenant-driven. Okay, what does that mean about divorce? Jesus uses really strong uh, language And he uses language that has a tremendous amount of margin for confusion. Uh, And it it brings up questions 
that we just can't leave unanswered. He says it like this. If you divorce for reasons other than sexual immorality, if and when you remarry, you commit adultery. In chapter 5, he says to the husband, if you divorce a woman just from the certificate of divorce and she remarries, you cause her to commit adultery. Even though you got the certificate, even though you went through the legal process, if you remarry and in remarrying, you join yourself sexually to another person, it's adultery is what Jesus says. Well, what does that, what does that mean? Like, how are we to make, make sense of that? Uh, I want to be very careful. I want to be very careful. Uh, divorce is a part of all of our lives, all of our lives. Most everyone in the room is probably close to a divorce. Maybe some of you grew up in homes and all you knew was life after a divorce. Some in the room have been part of a divorce. And so we're not just trying to understand what the Bible meant, but understand what it meant in the context of real story and real relationship and real people and real pain. When we come to passages like these, what we need is we need to hold in both hands together conviction and compassion. If, if we lose conviction, we turn our backs on the truth and we'll be carried by anything and everything. But if we lose compassion, we turn our backs on grace and we will have nothing to help us as imperfect people who are so frail. And so can you believe with me together that we can hold on to hard truth and amazing grace at the same time? So let me say it like this. A broken marriage does not mean a ruined life. It doesn't. Divorce to whatever degree that's a part of your story or your life, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It's not. We can hold the hard truths and lean into the grace that God has made available to us at the same time. Here's what I believe Jesus to mean. When Jesus says what he says about if you remarry, if it's not for sexual morality, you cause your spouse or your former spouse to commit adultery, what he's saying to some standing around him, just to say it in as plain terms as I can, He's saying that God did not agree with you that your marriage was over. God did not believe or see your covenant as being broken. Like if marriage is God-centered and covenant-driven, it's not the certificate that determines when the covenant's over, it's God. So the reason Jesus says some committed adultery is because they remarried when in God's eyes they were still married. On their wedding day to their second spouse, they were still in covenant with their first one, even though they got a certificate. That seems to me to be Jesus' point. In God's eyes, the covenant was not broken, and they broke it not when they got Moses' certificate, but when they slept with their next spouse. Let me, let me try to put it in conversation. If Jesus is having a conversation with some people that are listening to him in this moment, and if, and if he was to sit down with them, if he were to sit down with me, and I explained to him what was going on in my marriage, and, and I asked him, what should I do? And it's really difficult, and I'm thinking about, you know, about getting out, under the banner of marriage being God-centered and covenant-driven, Jesus would say to me, keep your covenant. If I'm going to him for counseling, what does God believe about my marriage? He would say, don't break your covenant. You promised to be with, for, and form this person. Now, if you know Jesus like I know Jesus, you know that that conversation is infused with a tremendous amount of patience and infused with a tremendous amount of grace And he's got room for our frustration and room for our our tears. But at the end of the conversation, he would say, do not break what's not broken. Keep your covenant. Well, well, Jesus, I already got the certificate and I'm thinking about marrying someone else. He would look at me and say, go back to your wife, your first wife. That if it's God-centered and covenant-driven 
Jesus would say, do not break covenant. Now, Jesus includes in that teaching an exception. And he says it like this, except for the case of sexual immorality. What the Bible teaches is that there are two instances in where God allows divorce. One is found in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. It's what we've read. It's sexual immorality. The Greek is porneia. I believe it means adulterous sexual sin. And then there's another one found in 1 Corinthians 7. It's commonly called abandonment. And the context is when a, a wife becomes a believer and her unbelieving husband leaves her, or when a husband becomes a believer and his unbelieving wife leaves him, abandons. The, the word literally means they, they abandon. What, what God would say is the two become one flesh. They undo that by departing from the marriage. Now, there is much disagreement around what all that means and what it doesn't mean. What I believe Scripture teaches, what the elders of Citizens Church believe Scripture teaches about this is that no one is permitted by God to break their covenant. No one is permitted by God to break the marital covenant because God is the kind of God that does not break His redemptive covenant with us. But there are times when a spouse has done something so destructive in the marriage there are two broad instances where the spouse has done something so destructive in the marriage, they have sinned against their spouse in a way that has broken the covenant. It was the, uh, the spouse who acted in a way, sinned in a way that so fractured the marital covenant that God allows the sinned against spouse, God allows the offended spouse to respond by making legal what is true spiritually. They did not break the covenant. They are not the one breaking the covenant, but they are responding in those instances where a spouse has sinned to such a degree that the covenant has broken. That seems to be Jesus's explanation in logic here. The reason he says that the, uh, except for the case of sexual immorality, that God is not encouraging divorce, but where the covenant has already been broken, God is not forcing a spouse to act like it's not. So, so where there has been adultery, according to Matthew 5 and 19, there has been such a fracture in the covenant. When you, the, the whole ceremony of marriage is consummation. When you literally become one flesh with your spouse and when you uh, take your body and join it to someone else's, you have rehearsed the covenant of marriage with someone that you're not in covenant with. And so the covenant breaks. And there's a, a host of, of, of other things to say about that that we don't have time to say. Where there has been abandonment, this is harder to define. This is the one that is much more controversial, but I believe that that includes. So when someone physically just leaves the marriage, when someone physically departs from the marriage, abandonment, but I also believe it includes the kind of negligent, destructive, abusive behavior that would indicate unbelief, unrepentance, and has the effect of not only the kind of destructive, abusive, abandoning kind of behavior that has the effect of not only deteriorating the covenant, but dehumanizing the person that you covenanted to, in that instance, the sinned against spouse has the freedom to make true legally what is already true spiritually. So where adulterous sexual immorality has happened, where one spouse has abandoned the other in a way that destroys the covenant, Jesus allows 
for divorce in those instances, not as a breaking of the covenant, but as a response to a covenant that's been broken. I need to say two things that I beg you to hear. One, this is so complex. It's so difficult. No one story is the same. No one story is the same. And I know that maybe some hear all I said and wonder, what in the world does that mean for my situation? What in the world does that mean for my past? Or, or I'll tell you, a lot of, uh, I hope, godly fears for me this morning in talking through this, the greatest of those fears is that some would hear me, some who have walked a righteous path that ended in divorce, and yet because of the way that we've talked about this, they would feel shame or they would feel guilt when Jesus has none. It is simply not possible in this space to say all that needs to be said. I have reached the limits of what the pastoral moment can hold in this room. And so I'll say this. If there are questions, if there's confusion, if there's hurt, if there's just a wondering, the next step is to seek counsel, godly counsel, wise counsel that's going to be rooted in a God-centered, covenant-driven view of marriage. We need one another, and we need counsel and wisdom in seeking God's will, especially in the messiest places of our lives. I, I don't presume that all of you will want to accept this invitation but I do need all of you to hear the invitation that we as a church want to walk with you in love and in grace and in truth. The second thing I need you to hear, God is a reconciling God. God is, is a God that can turn ashes into beauty. He says it about himself. God never commands anyone to divorce. He allows some, but he commands none. And so even where divorce is a biblical option, there needs to be time given for repentance to happen. There needs to be time given for healing. We, because, because, not because anyone deserves it, but because we believe in the God of Isaiah 41, who turns deserts into pools of water, who turns parched earth into flowing streams. And I have seen him in this church, take the most broken marriages and mend broken covenants. I have seen him in this church raise dead love back to life. And so for all, the, I would contend and plead that we dare to believe in God's healing power, especially in the most broken places of our life. The true story about marriage is that it is God-centered and covenant-driven. What do you believe about marriage? What's the story that you believe? Whose voice is the most shaping, influential voice in your life? Would you do something with me? I want to lead us in maybe how God would have us respond this morning. In light of all that's been said, would you pray with me? Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? And we spend a few minutes praying together. And, and with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to ask of the room that we would consider two things. Just consider two things. If you're married, would you consider what kind of conversation you need to have with your spouse? Cards on the table. I've never been able to consider what God says about marriage and not need to ask for forgiveness for something. So that happened Thursday night. I needed to lay selfishness. I needed to lay ways 
that I had demanded my marriage become about me in front of my spouse and asked for her forgiveness so that we could return to a place of God-centered, covenant-driven marriage. What conversation do you need to have with your spouse? Please don't waste this morning by leaving and the only takeaway is that that was a nice service. Please don't waste this morning by the only takeaway being what do we want to do for lunch? Please consider if the voice of Jesus has any authority in your life, at the very least, let his words become a conversation between you and your spouse. Is our marriage God-centered and covenant-driven? Is our marriage, is there a way that I can ask for forgiveness? Is there a way that I can help lead us towards flourishing? Husband, would you commit right now that you're gonna be the one that leads out in that conversation? Wife, would you commit right now that you're gonna be uh, pledged to God to initiate that conversation? And maybe things in your marriage are at such a breaking point that you can't have that conversation with just the two of you. Invite other voices to have that conversation with you. Would you consider that God wants you to do that? And then for all of us, not all of us need to have a conversation with our spouse because not all of us are married, but for all of us, what kind of conversation do you need to have with God? Where do you need to confess and repent before a holy God? Where do you need to invite the grace of God to cover over wounds and failures? Where can you be reminded that a loving God believes about you, that a broken relationship does not mean a ruined life, that there is no sin that is unforgivable, that the, the same Jesus that entered into Jerusalem with the cross before him for the joy set before him endured the cross has all the resources of grace and mercy you need. Would you ask God? Would you pray to him? Would you take that thought and turn it into conversation with him? Father, we love you. We thank you that you are with us and you are for us and you are forming us. It is a joy. The greatest joy of our life is belonging to you and being loved by you. We thank you. We worship you. I, I feel the limits of what I know about the room and I feel the limits of what I can do for the people in the room and God, you have no limits. You know every story, you know every hurt, you know every objection, you know every ounce of confusion, you know all the pain, and you can move in the hearts and lives of your sons and daughters to restore and to heal. We ask that you would do it. Amen.